Welcome to the September 2020 podcast for the Journal of Parenteral and Enteral Nutrition. My name is Dr. Kelly Tappenden. I'm professor and head of kinesiology and nutrition at the University of Illinois at Chicago and editor-in-chief of the Journal of Parenteral and Enteral Nutrition. The paper we're going to be covering today is called Evaluation of Fibrosis in Intestinal Failure-Associated Liver Disease in the Sustained Registry. And my guest is Dayan Ishish, who is here on behalf of his co-authors to speak to us about this paper. Now, Dr. Ishish, I was really happy to see uh, you using the sustained registry, despite the fact that we are, you know, we're no longer enrolling patients into that registry on home PN patients. There is a lot of data mining that can be done. So tell us about what your interests were and, and why you embarked on this work. Well, thank you, Dr. Tappenden, for this wonderful invitation. Um, I'm happy to, to discuss and present on our, on our publication. We've had some interest in intestinal failure associated liver disease now for some time, um, stemming from uh, basic science models all the way through to clinical care, because I think we're really on the verge of developing some novel treatments for intestinal failure associated liver disease. And so this is currently an active area of research uh, within our group. Since it's a relatively rare complication of parenteral nutrition support, we were looking for a relatively large collection of patients. So many studies have been limited to single center studies with numbers ranging from the teens to 50 to 60 patients. And so we wanted to see where we could find the largest collection of individuals with intestinal failure. And that's really what led us to the sustained registry. Very good. So being faced with the sustained registry then, how did you go about mining this data? What's the process for that? So utilizing the sustained registry was actually fairly straightforward. On Aspen's website, there's a really nice description of the sustained registry, as well as the contents and the questionnaires used. There's been several publications, both from disease-specific publications, such as the enterocutaneous fistulas, uh, two descriptions of catheter use and catheter-related complications in the sustained registry. So the sustained registry overall was essentially a cross-sectional snapshot from 29 centers, and there was some longitudinal data collection in the subset of patients, but overall it was over 1,200 patients of which 85% were adult patients, and among which nearly 30% were expected to be on parenteral nutrition for an indefinite period of time. Since intestinal failure-associated liver disease primarily affects individuals that are on prolonged parenteral nutrition support, we ended up excluding individuals that were on parenteral nutrition for short periods of time, those on it for less than three months. We excluded pediatric cases since the liver disease that develops primarily in neonates is likely different than that what develops in adults. And we ended up excluding individuals that we didn't have uh, biochemical liver studies for. That led us to an overall population of 271 individuals that met our inclusion criteria. Very good. So that's a nice sample size uh, for this patient population, what was your primary outcome? Just looking at 
acquired data, the, the prevalence of intestinal failure associated with liver disease is really limited by the definitions used, but it can range anywhere between zero to 50%. If we take that middle number and say something on the order of 20 to 25% of individuals will have intestinal failure associated with liver disease, this number told us that we'd have anywhere between 40 and 60 individuals with intestinal failure associated with liver disease in this population. Our primary analysis was essentially simple associations with known risk factors. Because intestinal failure associated with liver disease varies based on different definitions used, we wanted to use a relatively novel definition of a fibrosis 4 index. This is commonly used to measure scarring within the liver within the non-alcoholic fatty liver disease population, but it really hasn't been applied to intestinal failure associated liver disease. This definition is going to obviously require validation against the gold standard of liver biopsy, but we wanted to essentially explore this definition with known risk factors for intestinal failure associated liver disease. A number of studies have identified various risk factors, ranging from sepsis to small bowel length, bacterial overgrowth, energy utilization, lipid use. And so we wanted to look at various associations between known causes of intestinal failure associated liver disease with this novel score. And so what we were able to see was that the risk factors of short bowel syndrome, duration of parenteral nutrition use, amount of lipid used, and in small intestine length, all associated with this definition of intestinal failure associated liver disease. Very interesting. Could you go through each uh, and just discuss a little more each of those associations that you just listed as being important? Definitely. So previously, the term for the liver disease that occurred in individuals with intestinal failure has also been called parenteral nutrition associated liver disease or penile. There's a consensus position statement from the European Society of Parental and Enteral Nutrition from 2018 that kind of nicely highlights the reasoning behind the nomenclature of intestinal failure associated liver disease. The fact that the intestines are and the presence of a normal functioning intestine is important in the development or in the protection against the development of intestinal failure associated liver disease. And so the first two findings of having a diagnosis of short bowel syndrome, as well as small intestinal length being associated with fibrosis of the liver, suggests that the lack of an intestine and some of the normal bile acid signaling that goes along with having a healthy small intestine contributes to the development of intestinal failure associated liver disease. Individuals with short bowel syndrome had an increased likelihood of, of having scarring within the liver as measured by the FIB4 index. And the small intestine length was only present in about 39 individuals because it's, this is not a variable that we commonly have in all individuals. And in, in that small subset of patients, the small intestine length was inversely associated with the presence of liver scarring. Individuals with a small intestine length of less than 85 centimeters had a 
prevalence of having advanced fibrosis as compared to only a 5% prevalence in those that had a small bowel length greater than 85 centimeters. Along those lines, individuals that have short bowel syndrome, and particularly those with less than 100 centimeters of small bowel, are more likely to be requiring parental nutrition for indefinite periods of time. And so the length of time of parental nutrition was also associated with the development of fibrosis, as was the amount of lipid emulsion used. This has been known since the early 2000s when there was really a sentinel paper from France demonstrating that receipt of lipids over one gram per kilogram of body weight was associated with the development of liver disease in individuals requiring parental nutrition. How do you think that issue regarding lipid administration has changed from the time these data were originally collected now that more options are available? So I definitely think that since the early 2000s, we have cut down on our use overall of intravenous lipids. Now, over the last three to five years, we've had more options with respect to the fish oil-containing lipid emulsions for use in adult patients. The specific formulation of the lipid emulsions was not available within the sustained registry, although it would be expected that individuals that are at risk for intestinal failure-associated liver disease are more commonly utilizing fish oil-containing regimens in their parental nutrition at this time. I appreciate the time that you and your colleagues took to really think about the definition and make a distinction between penold, ifold, napold, uh, and, and look at this uh, in a very distinct way. Given your results, what are the implications that you would discuss with other practitioners practicing in this area? Well, I think that's really kind of one of the fascinating pieces of this work. And with any good research paper, I think it should generate almost more questions than it does answers. And really what this does for us is it's starting to get into this idea of using non-invasive markers to define IFILD. This has been an area of active research for, for a number of years now, and really it's been trailing the NAFLD literature by, by several years. Whether it's using MRI, ultrasound, elastography, or biochemical markers, we need to try to develop some non-invasive measure to at least identify those that are at highest risk for IFELD that subsequently can undergo biopsy for disease staging. But we first need to identify that population that's at greatest risk. We already know a lot of these risk factors, including small bowel length, receipt of PN duration, but none of that has actually been generated into a, a single risk score, which are now commonly used in the NAFLD population. Several studies have looked at this fibrosis 4 index within individuals with intestinal failure-associated liver disease, the largest being a multicenter study published in 2014 from Europe that only included 30 patients in which the primary outcome was the assessment of a transient elastography predicting fibrosis based on the gold standard of liver biopsy. Although transient elastography only trended to significance with a p-value of 0.056, 
transient elastography correlated with the fibrosis 4 index, suggesting that we are on the verge of developing a risk score to identify patients at highest risk. So in future studies, we need to try, probably in a multicenter fashion, collect liver biopsies from individuals with parental nutrition use for prolonged durations to create the best risk score, which probably is going to be something like a fibrosis 4 index with additional independent variables such as parental nutrition duration as well as small bowel length. If we can create that type of risk score, I think we'll all be speaking then a common language when it comes to studies in this field which then will open up the area for defining patients for future therapeutics. That's just excellent. I think that's a great goal. Thank you for your work that does generate more questions and certainly contributes to advancing this aspect of liver disease. For our readers, please do go to the September 2020 issue of JPEN and read the paper just described by Dr. Ishish and his colleagues entitled Evaluation of Fibrosis in Intestinal Failure-Associated Liver Disease in the Sustained Registry. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you.